Or you can have a seat. And uh, we want to say welcome and good morning to all of you watching us online today. My name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and uh, wherever you're watching from, you might have noticed some hands in the room or some heads in the room. Uh, we do have some more people joining us today, and as we prepare for in-person services uh, starting next week, we thought it would be fun to invite our staff and their families, our elders and their families, and uh, some of the volunteers and their families that are on stage this morning to just join us as, well, we're practicing, we're learning some things, again, all in advance uh, for next Sunday. And you might also recognize a change in atmosphere here today as we're broadcasting this morning from our Carmel campus. And as we've been praying and preparing for a future of an online ministry, there was just so many reasons why broadcasting from our Carmel campus makes the most sense. And so we'll be here uh, every week uh, online for you that'll be joining us uh, in the weeks to come. And we are very grateful for a number of upgrades and things we've been able to do right here at our Carmel campus uh, just to make the online service as positive uh, as possible. We've got a team that's really been working working hard. And again, uh, we're looking forward to next week. Uh, Ben's going to be up here in a few minutes. He'll, he'll talk to you a little bit more about some of the details for next week. But I, I want to say this uh, before I go on this morning. We know that some of you are ready to come back with us beginning next Sunday, but we also know that there are a number of you uh, that aren't ready to come back. You're not comfortable in coming back just yet, or maybe you've been advised that it's just best not to right now. I want you to know that's okay. And if you're not comfortable, we want to encourage you to to stay home and to join us online. But I do want to say this, and I think this is true for all of us, and certainly this, this season that we are in right now as a church and really as a country and in the world. But um, I just want to make sure you stay connected. Uh, you need to stay connected to our church family. And even if that means that you need to be at home right now, uh, whether that's taking a step into greater community with a small group, getting involved with something that we're, we're doing online, even just saying, you know what, every Sunday at 1030, we are going to worship together. We're going to worship together as a family. I know the evil one would love to have you drift from our church. Don't let him do that because you are way too important to this church family. We need you, all right? We need one another. Again, you are an important part of this church family. So please take whatever steps that you need to take uh, in order to stay connected to what God wants to do through our church uh, and in your life as well. You know, as a pastor, um, I've had the privilege of officiating a bunch of weddings over the years, and it's really a fun role to play. Uh, it's a fun role in that you get to know a couple uh, in a really unique way. You get to know their family. Uh, you get to little, know a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes, especially uh, the anticipation to the big wedding day, and you get the best seat in the house for the wedding ceremony. You really do. I mean, front and center with the bride and groom, you get to see their expressions, uh, their nervous grins, uh, the whispers, and even some tears from time to time, uh, but also, and I would say one of the hardest parts for me being that up close and center is the kiss, all right? Because every once in a while, you get the couple that just goes for it uh, in that moment, and there's really nowhere to go, and I don't really want to be a part of that, all right? I mean, I'm happy for them and all, and so that's just an awkward moment where I got to look away, I got to look down, I got I to find something else to do, but because I've done a bunch of weddings, I've got some good stories too, stories of things 
things that went terribly wrong. Like I was uh, doing a wedding in Michigan when we lived there a bunch of years ago, and it was a much more traditional sanctuary. In fact, the stage was probably as tall as this one, and then with probably six steps leading down to the floor. And so I had been on this upper stage with the, the bride and groom. I had just pronounced them husband and wife. They kissed, they turned, and then they took those first steps down. And wouldn't you know it, the bride took one step, her heel snapped, and she went face first all the way down the stairs, spread out on the floor below, no joke, not kidding. I mean, the husband let go of her hand. Like, how did he let go of her hand in that moment? Now, to her credit, the heel did break. It wasn't her fault, and she had a great sense of humor. And so she jumped up in the moment and did a little ta-da. I won't forget it. I know she won't ever forget it, and anybody that was there that day won't forget it either. I, I was doing another wedding some years later in Louisville, and uh, we were in a historic part of town. It was a, a really old, historic church, and we were about halfway through the wedding ceremony, uh, and I was sharing when all of a sudden a tour bus that was passing by, their microphone frequency intercepted and overran our microphone frequency, and there was nothing to do for five minutes. We all just sat there and listened as this passing tour bus gave us everything we ever wanted to know about that building and about that neighborhood, and all we could do was wait until they were gone, and then we continued on with the ceremony. But uh, for me, and personally, maybe none as embarrassing as certainly this one, uh, just a picture here today of yours truly uh, on his wedding day, my wedding day over 20 years ago. And as I was looking at this picture this past week, I just couldn't help but ask, like, whose idea was that? Like, who suggested, hey, go stand under the tree and put out the vibe, right? You know, I mean, uh, and so uh, this is a fun picture and, and one that we're obviously still holding on to. But we all know that weddings are a big deal. Uh, weddings are a really big deal, and for so many good reasons, but they were an even bigger deal 2,000 years ago in the days of Jesus. If you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 2. If you use something like the YouVersion app on your phone, uh, go to John chapter 2 with us. Today, we're going to look at a wedding celebration that Jesus and his disciples attended, and something went terribly wrong. They ran out of wine at the wedding reception. Now, we've all been to some weddings before where it would have been a good thing for everyone if they ran out of wine early, uh, but this is different because running out of wine at a first century Jewish wedding was incredibly humiliating. Uh, it brought about public shame on the family, and that's where Jesus is going to come in. He's going to turn water to wine and save the celebration. And in case you're not aware, this is the first recorded miracle that we have of Jesus in history. But this event in Jesus' life is so much more than having enough wine at the party. No, God the Father is going to use this miracle to demonstrate that Jesus is his son and also remind each of us of the power to not only change water to wine, but to show us that he is one that can bring life to where there is death. That Jesus Christ is the one that can infuse hope where there is sorrow. Uh, that he is the one that offers courage in the midst of, of fear, the fear that threatens to take over and he can do so much more. And so this is a miracle that reminds us of God's power to transform any life, uh, to transform any circumstance. And you know what? Maybe he's got something that he wants to do, some work that he wants to do, some transformation that he wants to start, begin, or continue in your life 
today. Pray with me for a moment, if you would. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing uh, in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in our church, Lord. Man, this has been a, a crazy season for all of us, but we are grateful for you. We are reminded today that you are a great and an amazing God, that you are in control of all things, and we're just offering our lives up to you today, God. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use this time that we have here this morning uh, to speak into our hearts and into our lives to help us see Jesus for who he is and the power and the work that you can accomplish in my life, in any life, as we surrender to you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 2, if you've got your Bible starting in verse 1, let's read along together. The gospel writer John says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, if you've been following along with us for the last few weeks, uh, we have uh, followed Jesus to a number of different occasions, but most of what has been taking place in Jesus' life has happened here near the Dead Sea, near Jerusalem and near a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan where many people believe that Jesus was baptized. They also believe that he would have spent time in the wilderness here around the Dead Sea. But the scene changes today in John chapter 2 as Jesus and his disciples are now up here to the north in a town called Cana near the Sea of Galilee, why it's called Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' disciple John recalls this event and he records the details for us. And I want you to notice that right here in verse 1, he starts the chapter with the words, on the third day. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're familiar with John's gospel at all, or if you recall Jerry's message from last week, John begins his gospel with the chronology of the events leading up to this particular wedding in Cana. And here's just a brief picture of that, what we've seen uh, over the last few weeks together. That if you read John, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19, uh, we find that John the Baptist is questioned. And then day two, John the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God in John 1, 29. Day three, John the Baptist introduces Andrew and John, and Andrew brings Peter. Uh, day four, Jesus finds Philip. All right, Philip brings Nathaniel. Daniel, and then we're to assume that days five and six were potentially travel days for Jesus and the disciples to Cana. And then finally, day seven, we're going to see just a moment where Jesus changes water to wine at a wedding. And so when John talks about the third day, what he's likely referring to is three days since the last event took place. The last recorded event is uh, Jesus finding Philip and Philip bringing Nathaniel. Again, we don't know a lot about days five and six, and so day seven is the third day since the last event. Now, why is this important? Well, I think a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it just provides confidence, confidence of John's careful attention to the details for us. Like, we should be more and more confident about these words as historical proof for us. But secondly, I'm also reminded that Jesus didn't come to the earth to waste time. All right, he, he, he isn't just letting things happen, but he had a purpose. 
uh, Jesus is operating according to a divine schedule. What a great reminder for us, uh, for all of us, no matter how young or no matter how old you are, that as followers of Jesus, we're not just here wasting time on earth. All right, we're not here just to spend money and to consume. No, as followers of Jesus, you and I, we're here for a reason. Uh, we are on this earth for a purpose, and, and that means every person, uh, it means every moment, it means every situation, even this pandemic is one more opportunity for us to glorify God and to serve Jesus in this world. And one more thing, one more thing about this phrase, the third day, do you know it's meant to spark, to pique our curiosity, if you would, about something else? Because what else happened on the third day? You can read about it at the end of, of the Gospel of John here. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, I think John's being very intentional here. It's a hint that there is more going on at this wedding than we realize. Now, let's talk about first century weddings for just a moment. Again, we've all been to some big weddings, uh, but probably not something like this. Scholar and pastor Kent Hughes describes wedding in the first century this way. He says, the wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast. Afterwards, the, after the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torch-lit parade, complete with a canopy held over their heads. They were always taken along the busiest route possible so that everyone would have the opportunity to wish them well. Instead of a honeymoon, they held an open house for a week. Not sure how I feel about that, but they were considered to be a king and queen and actually wore crowns and dressed in robes. The festivities could last up to a week. Some of you get a little bent out of shape, all right, for having to give up a whole Saturday for a wedding. Imagine having to give up a full week for a wedding celebration. Seven days, people celebrating the whole time, and Jesus and his disciples were there to celebrate with them. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And so Jesus' mother Mary was there, and many assume that she was family to the bride and groom and that she's playing a role at the wedding. And so she sees that they're out of wine, all right, and she immediately goes to Jesus. And you can't underemphasize the tone of her words, the distress of no wine, because again, wine was essential. All right, and not so that the guests could drink to excess either, but because it was a symbol of joy and celebration. Let me say that again. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy and of celebration. And not only that, but running out of food or running out of wine in this culture was considered a crime. You could actually be punished by a lawsuit for running out of food or wine at a wedding. And so you can see why it's a problem. And so Mary goes to Jesus, and she doesn't ask him to do anything, but it sure appears that she's implying that she knows he can. Look at verses 4 and 5. We read this. Woman, Jesus said, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet Come. Now, my dad is a wonderful man who loves the Lord, but I guarantee you that if I talked to my mother like this, even at the age of 44, I would not get a timeout in the corner, all right? There would be something greater coming my way. But seriously, this exchange here is a little tricky when you try and translate it in the English because we read it and it sounds like Jesus is being disrespectful. But when you understand the Hebrew, the Hebrew idioms that are being used here, it's not that at all. 
Because Mary knows that Jesus could do something because she knows who he is. Like she remembers the messenger. She remembers the angel talking about this baby that would come and what he would do and prophesying about him. And so while Jesus then responds woman to her, which sounds rude to us in Hebrew, in fact, this was a courteous and respectful way of addressing someone like your mother. It was like he was saying ma'am or dear woman to her. And then the words, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come, is Jesus' way of saying, you know what, you, you know, you, you think you know what I can do. But Jesus is saying, we're, we're just, we're not on the same page here. Because for Jesus, remember, he's not acting independently. He is only doing what the Father has commanded him to do. And so he's operating according to his Father's will and schedule. And notice too, notice how Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. This isn't passive. This isn't her way of pushing or or fighting with Jesus at all. But instead, I, I see her as submitting in that moment. It's her way of saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you will do what is right. And I just think there are a couple of things that we need to see here. First, I mean, see how this miracle arose out of a basic human need. Uh, That's encouraging to me that there's a wedding, they run out of wine, but how encouraging that with God, there's nothing too small. uh, There's nothing too great in your life. There's nothing too normal. There's nothing too mundane. Like if it matters to you, like it matters to him. Like God cares about all of the details of our lives. And what else can we learn from Mary? Like, sure, again, let's learn that she had a problem and she went directly to Jesus. Again, what a great reminder to us of, with all of our needs, that we can always go before Jesus with every single one of our needs, but don't overlook her attitude either. Like, she takes her need to Jesus, but then submits to him. And what a great example for all of us of trust. What a great example of faith in Jesus, trusting him for whatever he chooses to do. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And and here's a picture uh, of some similar types of of containers uh, from a museum in in Jerusalem that kind of gives a picture of what these ceremonial washing jars would have looked like. And and John tells us three things, at least three things about them. First, that combined, they held anywhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of of water to be changed to wine. But second, uh, containers like these were used for, for hand washing in a specific ceremonial sort of way. Like ritual washing was a regular daily part of the Jewish belief system. And so every day, if you were a Jew living in these days of Jesus, you had to to wash your hands. You had to be cleansed uh, as a reminder of the ongoing stain of sin and separation in your lives. And so part of what Jesus is doing here is he's sending a message that the old way of doing things is about to pass. Like Jesus is taking these objects that represent all of your effort and all of my effort of trying to clean our lives up in order to please God, and he's about to transform it. Like he's bringing something new. He is providing new wine and new life for every single one of us. We're also told that these jars were made out of stone, just simple common clay, nothing fancy. Uh, It's also interesting, I think, that there are six. There are six jars, and I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that there were likely six disciples that are watching and observing all of this, looking over Jesus' shoulder, maybe, maybe not. 
Again, I just think it's kind of interesting. But look at what Jesus does next. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. What did the servants do here? Well, John records it for us. They, they filled the jars with water, but not just partially, but they filled these jars to the brim. And so Jesus is about to perform a miracle, but I want you to notice that it's preceded by obedience. And that's the interesting thing about so many of Jesus' miracles. You can read many of these as you work through the Gospels, even Gospels like John, and and whether it's the command to the sick man to pick up your mat and walk, or Jesus' instruction to Peter to get out of his seat and to get out of the boat to walk on water. Think about the little boy that offered up his lunch, his small lunch to Jesus. And so many of Jesus' miracles involve normal people like you and me doing something out of obedience, which means we can fill water pots, but we can't change water to wine. We can do ordinary obedient things, but only God has the power to do something great and extraordinary. And that's the attitude I want to have. And I I hope and pray that's the attitude that you want to have, that our church chooses to have, that whatever it is in life, You know, again, don't be afraid to take your needs to God. Ask Him to do great things in your life. And as you ask Him these things, trust Him as you pray to Him. But then then look to His Word and figure out what obedience from this point forward looks like. Like like ask yourself, what does obedience right now, obedience before God, look like in any of my relationships? Whether they be friendships, whether they be a dating relationship or in your marriage right now. What's obedience look like in these things? What's obedience look like at work? Uh, Obedience before Jesus. What's obedience look like at at school or or when you're around others? What's obedience look like in the way that you manage and view your finances? And not just partial obedience, because partial obedience is disobedience. And and so these servants, when you think about it, they could have come back to the wedding reception with half-filled containers, but they didn't. They filled the containers to the brim. Like, those couldn't have been easy to manage. Like, I, I imagine water splashing all over the place as they try and carry these containers. But think about your life right now. Like, in your life right now, are there any areas where you're practicing partial obedience or convenient obedience? I mean, maybe you keep wanting God to do something greater in your dating relationship. But the fact is that if you're living together or if you're sleeping together outside of marriage, God's not going to bless that. Or take your finances. Like some of you, some of us are wanting God to do even more in our lives and to bless us financially. But the question is, are you honoring God with your giving? Are you honoring him with your generosity? And does your giving resemble more of a half-filled container before Jesus Or are you filling it to the brim for the sake of him? Like these servants filled the containers to the brim. Like we should live like that. Like that's the kind of life that Jesus models for us. We we should give like that in a way that represents total obedience and faith. We're almost finished. Verses, uh, let's pick it up in verse 8. Then Jesus told them, now draw some of the water and uh, t- water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when you think about it, this really is a, a pretty private miracle. Uh, it's not necessarily public knowledge in this moment. Like Jesus knows what happened. Uh, the disciples are watching. Mary knows. The servant knows. The servants do, but no one from the celebration appears to know what really took place. But who's closest to the miracle besides Jesus, of course? I think the servants. You know, we don't get their names. We don't know who they are. But it was the servants who acted out of obedience that were so close to this miracle taking place before their eyes. I think about it like this. If you want to see more of God in your life, if you want to experience God in greater, more amazing ways, I just want to challenge you to see all of life as one big opportunity to surrender, to serve God every single day. Because when you serve God with all of your life, with every part of your life, you're going to see him work in ways like you haven't before. And even now, man, think about this even now for all of us. I mean, this world is, is a frightening, uh, this world is a confusing sort of place, like the temptation. Man, the temptation is to run and to hide, but we can't run and hide. If you follow Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, like, don't lose faith. Like, we, it is time to be bold and courageous in our faith, to see all of life and every person as an opportunity to, to serve. Because the more you serve, the more you're going to see God working in and through your life. One, one last question before we wrap this up. Why water to wine? Like of all of the things that Jesus could have done, like what's the big deal about making sure that these guests have enough wine to drink at this wedding celebration? I mean, certainly Jesus had some bigger fish to fry. We call it a miracle, but look, look at what John calls it. Verse 11, he ends this section here by saying, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so I want you to notice that John calls it a sign. All right, he refers to it as a sign. And what does a sign do? Well, a sign tells us something important. Uh, it's communicating some information that we need to know. It shows us how far we are, indicates when we've arrived. And so when John uses the word sign here in his gospel, he's doing it to convey the idea that there is something greater that is taking place. But again, why water to wine? Well, at least two reasons. They're right here in the text. And as I mentioned at the beginning, God is going to use this sign or this miracle to show us and to show others that Jesus Christ is his son. And while a private miracle, who sees it firsthand? Don't forget that the disciples are there. And they're just getting to know Jesus. And they've been spending time with him and around him. Again, it's just starting. What a great orientation to this rabbi. And they're not going to forget this moment. And it will be one of the most incredible memories of Jesus that they will hold on to. But there's something about this miracle, something else about it too, for Mary, uh, for the servants, for the disciples, for all of us. And that's just this. This miracle is a powerful reminder of what God can do and accomplish in any one of us, in any life, the power that he has to transform anything. Because here's the thing, no matter who you are, no matter what wines you've tasted and enjoyed in this world, like there comes a time when all of the excitement and all of the celebration of life can come to a screeching halt. 
And whether that's when the job goes away or the money runs out, uh, the test comes back worse than you expected. Uh, maybe it's when the relationship that meant so much to us comes to an end. Or certainly when you lose control of a life that you've worked so hard to control. I can't help but think about all of the lessons I've learned over these last few months. Maybe lessons that you're learning as well. And how quickly fear can overcome us. How, how all of our plans and hopes and expectations can, can change so quickly. Add to it all of the chaos the fighting, the division we see in our country. Another lesson from the miracle is just this. If you go looking for hope and satisfaction and fulfillment in anything other than Jesus Christ, you are going to be disappointed. Anything but Jesus will eventually run out or run dry. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the blessings that God has given to us, the things that we love to enjoy, but when anything other than Jesus becomes the ultimate thing in your life. I can promise you that one day you will be disappointed because the wine will run out. But what does Jesus do? He supplies the wine. It's Jesus who brings the joy. The good news of Jesus Christ is that when you trust him with your life, when you surrender all of your hopes and dreams to him, when you abide in him each day, the wine he provides, the joy he supplies, it increases as life goes on. And for those reasons, we can celebrate. You know, this same John that wrote down the details of this particular account a few chapters later in John chapter 10, verse 10, reminds us of the words of Jesus when he says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Amen. What a great reminder to us as a church family that when all of your hope and strength and trust is in Jesus Christ, that he provides the joy, that he is the one that gives us a reason to celebrate because all of our hope is in him. Again, that's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And when you trust him with your life, it doesn't matter the circumstances. You and I, we can find everything we need in him. And he can bring life and hope where there's been death. He can provide healing where there has been loss and hurt. And he can overcome the fear in your life and replace it with courage and faith in him. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our hope and our life, Lord. We thank you that Jesus gave his life on the cross so that we could have life. And by putting our faith and trust in him, that we can find everything that we need. And what a picture today of Jesus stepping into a situation where there potentially could have been so much shame and so much hurt and so much disappointment but bringing joy and bringing celebration through his life and through the power of you, our Father in heaven. God, I pray that you would remind us today that it's through salvation, that it's through Jesus Christ that we have all of the joy that we need and will ever need or could hope for. And for that reason, we have a reason to celebrate. Father, remind us today that we have a reason to celebrate. Remind our church that we have a reason to celebrate. Help us keep our eyes focused on you. 
fixed on you, finding everything that we need through you and through your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.